Welcome back to the ADMS podcast. I'm Natalie Campbell and in this episode we're revisiting a session from the 2023 International Conference on Automated Decision Making and Chinese Societies, which was held at RMIT University on the 1st to the 3rd of February. This session, titled Interdisciplinary Dialogues, includes four presentations. H.C. Steinhardt and Christian Gobel from the University of Vienna present Mobilising Social Anime to Strengthen the State, Justification Strategies for Social Credit on Sina Weibo. I would like to begin with thanking the organisers for, for putting together such a huge conference. Um, it's, it's a great honour to be part of that, and I'm sure it's been a lot of work. So uh, that's appreciated. Um, in my talk, I'm, I'm presenting a paper draft of, by me and my colleague, Christian Goebel, uh, where we argue that the Chinese state is using widespread notions of social enemy, just uh, speaking to uh, the last word just now, social problems, um, to strengthen state power. Um, and we argue so by analyzing uh, social media posts on the social credit system as they appeared on Weibo. So um, one of the, the key insights of the sociology of the state uh, has been that the granularity and the, and the depth of information states ob obtain from citizens are critical for developing state capacity, um, state power, and ultimately also for the durability of uh, political regimes. Um, so surveillance, uh, the rationalized control of information for the purpose of influence management or control, as David Lyon has defined it, lies at the heart of state modern state power. So governments are <clears throat> inherently interested in expanding surveillance, governments of any regime type. Um, citizens arguably, though, are inherently interested in keeping their information private. Um, but citizens are also interested in safety and security that states can provide. So in order to justify surveillance, governments need to persuade citizens that their security is under threat. And uh, surveillance literature has told us um, how governments use threats such as global terrorism, violent crime, migration, or threats to public health to justify various kinds of um, new surveillance uh, initiatives. Um, given that China is really the prototypical or is regarded as a prototypical authoritarian surveillance state. Um, actually, surprisingly little is known about how the Chinese government is selling these kinds of surveillance programs to, to the public. Um, uh, there's, there's some discussion. Um, Alex, Alex Trout-Gorg from, from this panel also contributed to it. Um, but uh, there's surprisingly little research so far. Um, arguably, the social credit system is part of the Chinese surveillance architecture. Uh, it aims at steering behavior by punishing and rewarding lesser legal and normative um, infractions. So um, it does not, so the typical surveillance justifications just do not fit very well for it. It does not aim at violent crime, migration, or terrorism. So the, the question we are asking is, how do the Chinese authorities seek to convince citizens that their security is in jeopardy? What is the core narrative the state seeks to promote and which impact does this narrative uh, unfold? 
to answer it, we downloaded um, all posts containing social credit um, from the social media platform Cinema Weibo um, and hand-coded a stratified random sample of posts. Um, so in our book, the social credit system is sort of unique because, um, well, it integrates information, uh, it generates public reputations, and it amplifies penalties and issues rewards in order to steer behavior and enforce rules laid down the by the state, essentially. Um, I'm sure you, you you all have heard a lot about it today, so I, I don't want to bore you with um, another set of details. Um, the key point, we argue, is that the social credit system combines legibility, so the ability of the state to, to see citizens and other social actors, uh, which is the foundation for surveillance and enforcement in one bundle. So that is why expert observers such as you know, Jeremy Daum or Bosier uh, Kremers have, have argued that it is essentially an extension of the law that seeks to improve enforcement according to state priorities. So Michael Mann has told us that, or has argued that infrastructural power is the capacity of the state to penetrate society and implement its decisions. So we think uh, the purpose of the social credit system aims to bolster exactly this dimension of state power. So it's a tool to increase infrastructural power. So um, back to how to justify it. Um, surveillance scholars to, uh, told us that governments tend to draw on um, so-called moral panics to justify new surveillance programs. So which moral panic in China could fit the purpose? Um, there's one moral panic uh, going on, um, punctuated by scandals uh, and animated public discourse over various forms of anti-social behavior, such as fraud, apathy, uh, social apathy, um, or various norm violations emerged in China over the 1990s, and particularly the 2000s. And we argue that social enemy um, going back to Durkheim, a condition of normlessness and social integration that is believed to produce transgressive behavior uh, is what sort of unifies um, the, the argument in all these discussions. Um, philosopher Wei, for instance, argued that norms are violated by so many people in everyday walk of life that it is no longer remotely alarmist to speak of the corruption of an entire people. Um, there are various other indications that suggest that these perceptions were very widespread among both elites, um, but also among the broad, broader public in China. So <clears throat> the problem for the Chinese state here is um, that such perceived so, you know, widespread social enemy puts its uh, political legitimacy under pressure. Um, and it's easy to find statements such as the one cited here from uh, Chinese ambassador to Germany uh, to see uh, that that appears that give appearance that the the authorities feel under pressure to do something. Okay, so following from from this uh, quick uh, ride through the discussion, 
uh, we formulated four um, expectations uh, of uh, what we will observe. Um, the first one is social the social enemy narrative uh, belongs to the most frequent issues in social credit related social media posts. Uh, accounts run by the state and the state-controlled media are particularly inclined to post content belonging to this narrative. And the social enemy narrative will generate the highest amount of attention on Weibo. And um, then there's one more expectation that's kind of falling from the sky here. We need to uh, uh, just root that better in the surveillance literature. But there's two potential counter narratives that could undermine efforts to justify the social credit system. Um, that is concerns about threats to uh, citizens' rights to privacy and concerns about uh, the social credit system being a tool of government control and repression. So it remains to be seen if these narratives play a role in the social media discussions, um, if it gets attention and whether it's being censored. Um, uh, quick look at um, what we did with our, how we got our data. Um, so we searched automatically on um, Cine Weibo for posts containing these terms. Uh, we did not do it in real time, only a small portion of the um, of the uh, post uh, towards the end. Um, we are expanding that a bit now, uh, but uh, so far do not treat it as real time downloaded data. Um, yeah, then we develop a coding scheme iteratively, uh, train coders on uh, coding it. Um, these are our intercoder reliability statistics. And uh, right. Uh, Quick word on the variables we use. Uh, user attention is our dependent variable here um, to measure. Uh, and we measure it by the number of user comments under the posts. We think that's the most intense form of engagement. Um, among the other variables important are the issues. So uh, the issues that uh, in the post define are, you know, described as defining the social credit system or the, the, the other issues that are associated with it. If there are any in posts, there are also posts where no such issue, issue is apparent. Um, belonging to the social enemy theme here um, are four. Um, one is what we call amplifier. So posts that mention how components of the social credit system or also of commercial uh, systems serve as amplifiers of laws and regulations, what we call civilizer posts that mention the social credit system as a solution for behaviors that are portrayed as violating social norms um, of civility, um, fraud, so fraud-related posts, uh, and trust are tr uh, posts related to you know, mentioning the issue of social trust. But we also measure other variables, which uh, I'm not going to go through here. So um, here's what we find. Uh, in terms of the raw issue frequency, um, only from post, uh, posted by state-affiliated accounts, so state government uh, court and state media accounts, um, the social enemy theme um, is the most frequent one taken together. So in the, in the you see that in the black bars, 40% um, of posts contain at least one of these themes. Uh, we do not code issues uh, exclusively. So one post can contain uh, more than one issue. Um, these potential counter discourses here in white are uh, not unsurprisingly marginalized. Um, if we look at all posts, not only from state affiliated accounts, the picture is similar. Social enemy is also relatively big. Um, uh, these 
counter discourses are small. Um, then who posted that? Um, state accounts are on average post 58% of um, all posts. Um, they are more inclined to post on these social enemy related themes. They also post on uh, the state, uh, the social credit system as a, a tool of state supervision. But when it comes to the most commented posts, um, states are most inclined. Most of these posts come from the state. Yeah. Um, user attention, average user attention, so the average number of comments, um, particularly for state affiliated accounts, um, these social enemy discourses, apart from, from one here, trust. Uh, gets a lot more attention than all the others. For all accounts, uh, there's one surprise here. Um, the counter discourse of social credit system as a tool of state control gets a lot of attention, but this is um, the result of one outlier. There are only 17 posts of this kind in the, um, in the data set and one post. Uh, I probably don't have time to go look at that, but it gets a lot of attention and it has been deleted. Okay. Um, we ran regressions, um, which you know, um, under control. Yeah, show that under control of various other factors, these three social enemy related um, uh, issues are systematically increasing the attention that a post gets on social media, measured in terms of comments. So, civilizer, fraud, and what we call amplifier. All right, um, yeah, so quickly uh, going into some of the details after the uh, quantitative analysis, we, we do some qualitative analysis. Um, so uh, overall, these uh, posts are characterized by very being very heavy on punishment. Uh, among the most commented posts are uh, issues where if, for instance, the social credit system is used for um, housing-related or um, real estate-related fraud, healthcare conflicts, um, issues surrounding, uh, uh, yeah, connected to the so-called Lao Lai. Um, and frequently, but not, not always, but frequently, these posts get a lot of positive comments. Um, uh, and these narratives are adopted by, uh, also by some, you know, citizen posts um, uh, that get more attention. There are not many, but there are some. Um, and the biggest hit probably uh, for the propaganda system uh, to promote the social credit system was a series of um, train-related misbehaviors, so the so-called railway seat tyranny that happened, and that was used apparently by state media accounts to promote uh, the social credit system as a tool to resolve these difficult to police kind of norm, you know, everyday normative infractions. Okay, um, I'm, I don't have time to go into the, um, the little bit of objections that we also find, um, and uh, we cannot address the issue of censorship um, at this moment because we're revising something um, from, from this project. Um, to conclude, the Chinese state uh, responds to an influential notion that society is plagued by severe problems of social enemy. Uh, these problems put the legitimacy of the ruling party under pressure. The state is, is trying to turn the tables around by portraying itself as the ultimate arbiter to resolve these problems and rationalizes the social credit system as a tool to protect society from itself. 
Um, the state seems to have had notable success in mobilizing problems of social enemy and sidestepping thereby questions about its own governance for rationalizing and its expansion of power over society. Of, of course, there's a caveat. Success here is on social media, which is state-controlled, a state-controlled sphere of information. Um, yeah, okay, that's um, our paper. Thank you for your attention. Anne Christian Tremont from the School of Advanced Studies in the Social Sciences Paris now presents Scientific Fairness, Experimentation and Critique of Point Systems in Shenzhen. Thank you very much for organizing this conference and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, so the uh, title of my paper is Scientific Fairness, Justifications and critiques of point-based systems, trial policies in Shenzhen. Um, during recent anti-zero uh, uh, COVID online and street demonstrations, Chinese citizens argued that the government policy had no scientific basis, though it was Wu Kexue. Point systems claims to uh, scientificalness are also under netizens' fire. Point-based systems have become generalized in China's larger cities as a way of uh, recruiting urban citizens and granting them hukou, uh, among others. Uh, but here I focus mainly on uh, um, hukou access point-based systems. Um, but they also um, uh, are they are also used to extend um, a range of public services that were until the early and mid 2010s accessible only to hukou holders um, uh, and mainly uh, public schools. So the point-based uh, channel initially extended the possibility of hukou acquisition to people who do not fit in existing categories of uh, hukou acquisition, but have lived and worked in the city for a minimum number of years in the name of promoting the citizenization, uh, the xiemenhua of migrant workers, and based on an implicit right to the city logic according to which people who have uh, long made contributions to the city where they live should be granted hukou. Uh, point systems are a flexible tool for keeping control over the population size while optimizing the population's quality by selecting certain categories of people for admission to urban citizenship. Uh, but they also ensure that an increase in the registered population will not result in greater pressure on the local budget. Because they are a tool for adjusting uh, the population to the economy, the policies constantly change and are labeled trial or experimental. Moreover, different category categories are uh, reordered and new channels created, generating a constantly evolving and a usually complex system. Although point-based uh, systems are most often presented as a method for reaching wider population management goals and planned economic objectives, they also receive justification based on their inherent fun functioning and mode of implementation. The municipal authorities of Shenzhen, uh, which is the focus of this um, the article I wrote, uh, justify the point systems by emphasizing the good governance principles they allow putting in practice. 
The concept scientific fairness, which was coined under uh, Hu Jintao and was used in a Shenzhen draft policy paper in uh, 2021, encapsulates the way point systems stand for these uh, good governance goals and principles. This article retraces uh, 12 years of experimentation with point systems in Shenzhen and analyze governmental discourse on points uh, policies and people's reactions to them, showing how their legitimization, both in policy announcements and responses to critiques, rests on the invocation of their scientific and reasonable character. Um, the paper is based on um, a, a, compar a comparative qualitative study of online policy documents and netizens' uh, postings on governmental and commercial forums, um, online forums in seven Chinese cities, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, Foshan, uh, Shanghai, Hangzhou, Beijing. Um, and yes, that's it. But the focus is here on Shenzhen. So I will uh, only briefly summarize my uh my paper which is quite uh long and i will switch to the second slide showing uh briefly the content of the first section which offers an outline of how household registration policies have evolved over the past two decades in shenzhen along with the city's policy of economic upgrading. Uh, from the beginning, points-based hukou channels were seen as a tool for reaching the goal of scientific development. Uh, the scientific outlook on development, as you probably all know, uh, means China has to change the course of its development path from fast growth over-reliant on a cheap labor force and the overuse of natural resources to a more qualitative development based on well-educated workers and environmental present preservation, to put it very briefly. And Shenzhen, um, I should uh, perhaps uh, note that Shenzhen is the Chinese city that has the largest share, over 70%, um, compared with an average 45% in Chinese cities of non-Huko holding migrant population, due to its development as a special economic zone. So since the early 2000s, Shenzhen has sought to upgrade its economy and therefore the scientific outlook on development concept has direct import for Shenzhen's urban population management policies. The 2005 opinions, a very important uh, policy document, stated that the city's demographic evolution in both size and composition must allow for economic upgrading and the threshold for household registration must be scientifically determined. Shenzhen, along with uh, several cities in the Pearl River Delta, launched its first trial points household policy in 2010, and the points-based channel was tailored for a category of people that were not including in the existing select categories who had, uh, that is people who had long-term stable residence in Shenzhen, but no hope of accessing Hukou because of their lack of cultural and economic capital. Uh, still, the point systems allow the municipal authorities to select permit holders under a certain age 
having at least a high school education and enjoying a stable work contract measured mainly by the number of years of contributions to social insurance. So point, point, the point-based channel is selective. Now, um, the second section unpacks the meaning of the scientific character attributed to point-based household registration systems. If population management must enable to achieve the objective of scientific development, it is also the management itself which must be scientific. Policy documents all start with a definition of point-based household registration that characterize it, that characterize um, point-based systems as scientific, kosher, uh, and reasonable, khali. Reasonable means first what is correctly planned to avoid disproportions between population and resources. And uh, second, reasonable also means fair or equitable. So to speak of reasonable in this sense is mostly legitimizing rhetoric, but it is also partly an injunction to lead a reasonable policy. The scientific and reasonable character of point systems ensures their objectivity and impartiality. The quantitative, quantitative treatment of the applicant's data and their ranking based on their numerical scores is also presented as scientific in the sense of fair, that is ensuring an equal and impartial treatment of candidates. Um, this is also how the extension of point-based assessment to different categories of applicants who had heretofore been allowed to apply for HUCO through uh, direct approval procedures um, is justified. So uh, point-based uh, assessments are being extended, have over time been extended to um, a diversity of categories of HUCO applicants. In addition to their justification as fair, that is unprejudiced and impartial selection systems, the Shenzhen municipal authorities put forward several governance principles that guide their implementation of point systems, uh, namely publicity, transparency, and accountability, but I won't go into any details here. The third section uh, critiques shows how explicit and implicit critiques of point systems all have to do with a, a lack of information and uncertainty about the workings that are at odds with the government's claim for open and reasonable population governance. First, uh, the lack of clear information regarding annual quotas is a source of uncertainty. The existence of a quota was only alluded to in early policy texts and the term quota itself was not used, even if the existence of a quota was explicitly acknowledged for the first time in 2017, there was very little information av available on how many points applicants should in actual fact score in order to have a chance of being accepted for Shenzhen Hukou. Uh, because although the eligibility threshold is set at 100 points, uh, the Hukou change observation block, which issued a guide explaining the policy by uh, taking members of the Peppa Pig family as illustrations for different cases um, and situations, revealed that the score for the 10,000th person in 2017 was 307 point, uh, points, which is equivalent to about 15 years of rent and social security. 
second, the shutting down of the point-based channel in Shenzhen in 2020 has further fueled uncertainty as well as anger caused by the absence of information. The Human Resources Security Bureau of Shenzhen City announced the shutdown on January 23, the date when the lockdown started in Wuhan. And although many people assumed that the suspension of the points entry system was due to COVID, actually this, this is not the case. People had to wait until June 2021 to get information about the direction of the new policy. Many criticisms were voiced on the Shenzhen message boards for leaders. As time went by, they increasingly demanded that clear reasons be given, criticizing the opacity and the secrecy. They based their critiques on the very principles that point systems are supposed to abide by, the principles of scientific fairness and transparency. They pointed out the contradiction between the intended outcomes of the policy granting Hukou to those who lead stable lives in Shenzhen and its abrupt suspension. And they also made ironic remarks about inconsistency, emphasizing the discrepancy between city slogans such as Shenzhen speed, urging the city government to respond speedily. They received a standardized response explaining that the system is currently under revision or reasserting some of the policy's principles. And third, some critiques and suggestions for improvement reveal a discrepancy between people's expectations and government's response. In the summer 2021, the Shenzhen authorities first issued several draft measures for which they solicited opinions from the public. One potentially subversive demand was that people meeting the basic threshold be granted hukou without being ranked. This was rejected based on the new principle of selection of the best. In short, the policy principles formed the revocable framework, irrevocable framework presented as rational within which adjustments can be made. Scientific fairness has not become a master concept uh, in CCP thought and will not be probably considering the way uh, Xi Jinping's actions and thought have overshadowed Hu Jintao's concepts, although scientific development remains. The principle of scientific and reasonable allocation of resources through point systems has shaped population management policies over the past dozen years and is likely considering the extensive information infrastructure it goes along with to continue shaping population policies. Despite the criteria's clarity and quantitative evaluations, objectivity, complexity, and uncertainty are built within the very working of the system. Scientific governance functions in a, a self-referential logic whereby the government labels its policy scientific and reasonable because it is a method and because this method, method is quantified and automated. This thoroughly um, depoliticized circularity precludes critique of such governance practices, workings, and rationale. Framing point systems in terms of scientific fairness allows foreclosing any substantial critique, in spite of government's, uh, governmental attempts at transparency and even public consultation. Point systems proclaim scientificalness and fairness lends them to critiques from the public, but also forecloses these critiques on these very grounds. Thank you.
Alexander Trouth-Goik from the University of Vienna and Philip Immel from the University of Würzburg present My Credit Score Ought to Surpass 90% of People, a qualitative analysis of citizen interpretations and engagements with state, commercial and peer-to-peer forms of surveillance in China. Okay, um, good afternoon to everyone there in Melbourne. I've found myself recently yearning for some Australian sun, so I hope that for those of you visiting uh, Melbourne, you can get to the beach and enjoy some of that sunny weather. Uh, my name is Alexander trout I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of uh, Vienna, and I'm presenting on behalf of uh, Philip Emil and I, our paper, um, a qualitative analysis of citizen interpretations and engagements with state commercial and peer-to-peer forms of surveillance in China. So firstly, why the focus on surveillance? Um, automated decision-making systems are predicated on abstracting and extracting masses of data about social life, and this feat is continuously facilitated through surveillance. So although these kinds of automated decision-making systems might be the recent outcome of trends of digitalization and exponential increases in computer, in computer processing speeds and storage capacities, the fundamental premise uh, is surveillance. And so even though uh, these kinds of systems attract questions of who has the authority to make decisions that impact social and economic life. They also are fundamentally connected to questions about who has the authority to monitor who, when and under uh, and for what purposes. And so in this respect, recent studies have uncovered high levels of public support for the use of state surveillance in China in contrast to other countries. And this has also been matched by lower support and distrust of commercial surveillance. Now, most research in this space has been survey-based and fine-grained qualitative studies may therefore help to articulate the exact dimensions to commercial state surveillance that contribute to citizen support or anxiety. In addition, previous research in this space has commenced from an institutional bias in other words, the target of analysis has been public attitudes towards either state or commercial surveillance. Meanwhile, costs of surveillance technologies are progressively reduced. There's increased public uptake of surveillance technologies and their logics. So think of the smartphone in your pocket, home safety devices, um, biometric self-monitoring technologies, et cetera. And there's a accompanying societal desensitization to practices of watching and being watched. In other words, we are participants in what David Lyon has dubbed a culture of surveillance. So if we take this uh, popularized definition of surveillance by David Lyon, any collection and processing of personal data, whether identifiable or not, for the purposes of influencing or managing those data who have been garnered, it becomes apparent that yes, state surveillance uh, ought to be subject to analysis, commercial surveillance as well. But the often uh, unacknowledged third pillar in this uh, discussion is peer-to-peer -peer surveillance, or what's sometimes referred to as lateral surveillance, um, advanced by scholars such as Mark Andreevich and James Cassio. 
um, which is referring to the surveillance which is conducted between and among individuals on a micro and a meso level. And so qualitative studies that compare public attitudes towards these three surveillance forms might give us further clues about the nature of support for state versus anxiety about commercial surveillance in China. And hence our present study, um, this study emerged from a series of uh, video interviews I conducted with individuals from uh, 20 different cities in China. And out of this research, we have two research questions that have um, emerged. And for the sake of the shortness of this presentation and to hopefully encourage a bit of enthusiasm to uh, read more into the findings of our paper, I'll be focusing on research question two in this presentation, the nature of support or anxiety towards state commercial and peer-to-peer -peer forms and surveillance, and specifically the relationship between state and peer-to-peer -peer surveillance in China. So again, when we're talking about peer-to-peer -peer surveillance, we're talking not the top-down monitoring of employees by employers, citizens by the state, but rather the peer-to-peer -peer surveillance of spouses, friends, and relatives. A notorious form of peer-to-peer -peer surveillance in China is the human flesh search, which is a literal translation of the Chinese phrase renrol solsor. So I think that there should probably be a more nuanced uh, translation of this where we're not talking about the some kind of trade of human body parts, but rather a form of mass collaborative investigation conducted by internet users commonly with the purpose of exposing the personal information of a target who has committed some misbehaviors or damaged the public interest. Peer-to-peer -peer surveillance has been noted uh, to enable civil activism and empower acts of good intentions, but it can also encourage mob activism. And a good barometer for gauging um, people's sensitivity towards different issues China, I've found anecdotally speaking, is to look at what kind of internet memes are being circulated online. And there are a lot of internet memes that uh, refer specifically to uh, Renroll Solsor. Participation in human flesh searches are subject to few restrictions and no limitations on membership. Large collectives form to persecute an individual for perceived wrongdoing, demonstrating the empowerment of regular citizens does not necessarily lead to equal power distribution. Privacy intrusions, threats to physical well-being and humiliation are often justified by an emotionally charged segment of the public. And this public is highly prone to amnesia concerning why mistakes committed during the course of investigation. And this is also reflected in some of our interview findings. Um, for example, Mrs. Jia from Beijing told me that nowadays all our information is public as long as someone wants to know your information it's actually quite simple and not too difficult to attain or mrs tongue in china if people do bad things they will be exposed we call these human flesh searches even if someone is doing something wrong there should be a relevant law or some form of punishment digging up all their information and then people judging or personally attacking them is really violating their safety and privacy so i don't agree with this trend Turning now to the overlap between the targets of peer-to-peer -peer and state surveillance, well, we know that government-facilitated projects that aspire to integrate ADM into their functionality, such as the social credit system, seek to punish legal and moral transgressions, thereby helping to civilise society. 
And these imperatives are often shared by members of the Chinese public as evidenced through their participation in human flesh search surveillance. Between 2012 and 2018, we saw some notable changing uh, patterns in the con conduct of human flesh searches, where uh, prior to 2012, the focus was on exposing government corruption and punishing corrupt officials. Uh, and this has shifted towards a focus on um, exposing uh, acts of sexual indecency um, and also uh, exposing and punishing people for committing uncivilized behavior in public spaces. And this is borne out in the research of Huang from uh, 2021, who showed that political changes influence the type of justice seeking which is pursued via these activities. So, for example, if you can see here, human flesh search cases targeting government personnel for abusing public power and resources sharply decreased in the years following the official anti-corruption campaign led by Xi Jinping. And that prior to 2010 exposing and punishing uncivilized behavior rarely, but between 2012 and 2018, this category surged alongside cases targeting sexual offenses. And in fact, human flesh search cases against regular civilians between 2012 and 2018 experienced a more than twofold increase. So the types of behaviors participants commonly earmarked as uncivilized were things like cutting in line, littering, open spitting in disregard of surrounds, quarreling in public places and talking loudly on the phone. Roughly half of the participant base expressed that enforcements against uncivilized behavior is weak in China. And you can see here um, some of the descriptions that participants gave. Um, Mrs. Liang, who told me that harsher penalties covering a broader array of uncivilized behaviors was needed to scare people into restraining themselves from acting in this way. Others lamenting that there's moral pressure on them saying it's not good for you to cut in line, but that there's no law about this. We don't have any law in this area. And an interesting case where an individual equipped, equipped themselves personally with surveillance cameras, Mrs. Fong, who was saying that after I moved into the suburb I'm now living in, the first thing that I wanted to do was to install surveillance in the hallway. A lot of people are motivated to install surveillance themselves. And for me, there is no harm in installing surveillance because I'm not going to do anything bad. It's the kind of bad people you prevent by installing surveillance. Now, what's interesting is when you contrast this with uh, recent uh, studies, survey-based studies that have been conducted on public opinion towards uh, Chinese social credit systems, including their punishments and uh, the nature of their surveillance, the most supported forms of or targets of social credit system surveillance are for behaviors that interviewees described as uncivilized. And in fact, we also had uh, several participants who thought that the primary aim of the social credit system was, um, as mentioned by Christoph in his presentation, to control these kinds of uncivilized behaviors in public spaces, um, these fights over train seats and people quarreling in public and behaving badly, for example. Now, methods of justice seeking have also become more institutionalized. Um, prior to 2011, doxing, publishing visual evidence and har harassment, both um, cyber harassment or wang or baoli, as well as physical, um, 
between 2011 and 2017, reporting cases to relevant institutions became a preferred means of resolving cases. And in 2018, this became the most popular means of justice seeking. So it seems as if the Xi administration's corruption drive, the establishment of official channel, channels for reporting socially transgressive behaviours and intensified ideological work, which has emphasised improving civility online and throughout Chinese society, have impacted the nature of human flesh searches in China. Although broader technological developments also likely contributed, given that the early 2010s is when social media went mobile in China, which would have increased the number of uncivilized cases that citizens could uh, document and share. So some brief uh, take-home messages on this aspect of our paper. Where state surveillance uh, was perceived by our participants as routine, unavoidable and common sense, more recent trends of commercial and peer-to-peer -peer surveillance are newer, more salient to individuals and thus more concerning. The targets of state and peer-to-peer -peer surveillance overlap, although it appears citizens place more faith in, a, a faith in official solutions as a means of addressing social enemy, while sensitive to the harms posed by peer-to-peer -peer surveillance. And we acknowledge that this study was limited by a very small sample size and thus quantitative studies are needed to tap and measure dominant attitudes towards peer-to-peer -to -peer surveillance to evaluate how patterns of justice seeking through human flesh search have changed since 2018. Thank you very much. And lastly, Lena Wesserman and Teresa Krauss from the University of Würzburg discussed the impact of the SCS on foreign companies using the case of German firms. Um, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Lena Wasserman, and I'm currently doing my PhD at the Chair of China Business and Economics at the University of Würzburg. And yeah, now I would like to thank the organizers even more for this inconvenience and still putting up this, this great conference um, and the chance for me to present um, our draft paper written by my colleague Teresa Krause and me on the impact of the social credit system on foreign companies using the case of German firms. Next slide, please. Um, Oh, that's still okay. Then next slide again. Um, yeah. Um, as you have heard a lot of the social credit system today, I will spare you the details. But um, so far, we can say that academia has often focused on the social credit system initiatives targeting individuals and as such, portraying the social credit system as a sole tool for surveillance. And by saying this, we do not mean that the social credit system does not have the potential to be used for surveillance. And there definitely is an overlap between the social credit system and um, the CCP aims for surveillance. But the surveillance state in China would also exist without the social credit system and has done so before. And besides this element of the social credit system, so this surveillance element, the corporate arm of the social credit system, which targets national and foreign firms, also fulfills economic tasks um, as it con contributes to um, a response or yeah, it constitutes a response to an inefficient market and thus tries to solve long prevailing economic problems threatening China's further economic growth. And these narratives that we see here are, next slide please, <laughs> on the one hand that 
there is this alleged lack of trust across Chinese society that we have heard of today before. And according to this narrative or this discourse, the source for this alert trust crisis was the fast economic and societal development during the reform and opening period, which led to an increasingly anonymous and also distrustful society. And on the other hand, we see that despite ongoing efforts to streamline the Chinese party state, and this focus on anti-corruption campaigns on the Xi Jinping, China faces high corruption levels, which results in an inefficient legal and regulatory enforcement. Um, even though these might be narratives, they do pose real life difficulties, which contribute to high levels of uncertainty on the Chinese market. And this ambiguous environment then in turn increases transaction costs for firms operating in China. Transaction costs um, are defined as the costs for operating on the market um, under assumptions that I will just preside on the next slide. Could you, can't you click again? <laughs> yeah. Um, and the higher these transaction costs are, the lower is the possibility that an intended transaction is actually carried out on the market. Or if it is carried out, then we see through this um, graph on the right-hand side that the lower the revenue, um, the higher transaction costs, the lower the revenue for a firm. And consequently, lower transaction costs can increase economic growth and overall welfare. And now I think you have to click twice because the graph is just moving. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, Maybe you already clicked through exactly because I intended this to be a bit more interact interactive, but now I think it's easier if you can see the whole thing. Um, yeah. So in contrast to neoclassical um, economic beliefs, new institutional economics regards um, the combination of individuals' bounded rationality um, their opportunistic behavior and overall uncertainties on the market as the cause for difficulties in transactions. And under these modifications of human behavior, market participants cannot solve problems that arise from externalities themselves any longer because they have incomplete and asymmetric information that can either persist in the form of adverse selection or moral hazard. So these assumptions stress basically the distinguishing feature of new institutional economics, and that is um, that inefficient markets leads to or lead to transaction costs. Transaction costs are quite hard to measure, um, but one can generally distinguish between um, internal and external transaction costs. Internal transaction costs occur within a firm when aligning, for example, firm internal relationships, for example, enforcing regulations or um, information between the communication um, management or yeah, external transaction costs, on the other hand, um, occur with any other third party, so between firms and um, this can be, for example, when you enforce contracts with suppliers or inquiring information on quality and prices of goods. The level of transaction costs can be either negatively or positively impacted by the conditions of transactions, which are um, yeah, defined by the condition of 
asset specificity, the degree of uncertainty under which a transaction is carried out, and the frequency in which the transaction is carried out. Furthermore, transaction costs are impacted by institutions. And even though institutions are normally set up with the goal to reduce transaction costs, because they offer stability and predictability for transactions, they can also increase transaction costs if they don't work well. Here we can say, or we can distinguish between formal institutions, which refer to constitutions, laws, um, contracts or regulations, and informal institutions, which consist of norms of conduct, beliefs and habits of thought and behavior. And next slide, please. If we adopt this behavior, uh, this perspective that I just presented now, um, we regard the social credit system as a set of formal and informal institutions, um, which were built to counteract the imperfections of the Chinese market by lowering external and internal transaction costs. And here the social credit system has three embedded mechanisms, which are designed to reach this goal. The first one is the transparency mechanism, which yeah, basically increases transparency and trust by providing easy to access, cheap and accurate information through the many social credit um, system related platforms like Credit China, Chichacha, or the National Enterprise Credit Information Publicity System. The second mechanism is the reward mechanism, which records morally praiseworthy behavior on firms on so-called red lists, and these red lists, red lists entail rewards. As such, this mechanism creates incentives for firms to act according to the rules to reap these benefits. And the third mechanism is the sanctioning mechanism, which works opposed to the reward mechanism as it reports or records morally blameworthy behavior on red lists, which then entail punishments for firms. And as, as such, it incentivizes firms even more to act according to the rules in order to avoid negative consequences. Next slide, please. And here you could also click a couple of times. Yeah, thank you. Um, very quickly um, to our methodology. In detail, we evaluate how the embedded transparency, reward and sanctioning mechanisms of the social credit system affect businesses' internal and external transaction costs through a quantitative case study on German firms. Here, the paper builds on results from Pisa's um, qualitative case study, which investigated um, corporate compliance of firms in China and the social credit system's impact in this context. Um, and she did so through qualitative interviews with business representatives from all types of companies. So really international um, uh, multinational enterprises, Chinese state owned, but also privately owned enterprises um, through very a large variety of industrial sectors and of different sizes. We then went on to view her finding through the lens of new institutional economics and transaction cost economics and tested um, the results for the case of German firms. So for that purpose, um, we put together a unique quantitative data set that was compiled um, consisting of first data from questionnaires distributed as part of the annual business confidence survey 
2020 and 2021 conducted by the German Chamber of Commerce in China. And second, um, we designed a web scraper that would crawl data from um, Credit China, which yeah, entailed 4,606 German firms and equally as many randomly compiled Chinese firms um, yeah, as a, a testing variable. Now, next slide, please. Um, and again, <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, now to the findings of this story, this study. Regarding the general impact of the social credit system, we reveal two findings. One, firms' knowledge about the system and its potential impact on their business operations is only slowly increasing, but still remains insufficient. In 2020, half of the German firms were still actively looking for information on the social credit system. That's the 30% um, in, in green, or believed that the social credit system is not relevant for their company. Still 17% um, here marked in orange. The second observation was that German firms seem to have a rather high compliance level um, in, for their operations in China and are therefore impacted less by the negative implications of the social credit system. According to the web scrape data from November 2022, only seven German firms from the sample hold a negative um, status, so a punishment status on Credit China. In contrast, it was 711 Chinese firms from the sample. Next slide, please. Um, yeah, thank you. The transparency mechanism, um, or with regard to the transparency mechanism, we can say that it can decrease transaction costs because the social credit system provides additional information used for, for example, third-party management, so external transaction costs and internal processes. Um, so internal transaction costs more cheaply and conveniently. Um, and here we see that 70% of the German firms um, who responded to this business confidence survey um, use these platforms actively, for example, to obtain information on potential and already existing business partners. Um, but we also have to see that in the short term, the transparency mechanism might increase um, transaction costs, uh, in, yeah, raise transaction costs, because firms need to employ, for example, staff or install systems to monitor the um, display data and possibly adjust them. In 2020, 40% of German firms had already installed such systems. But here we also have to see that in the long term, these investments pay off and might reduce transaction costs because these systems and personnel work um, in their favor. So on the next slide, um, I will share with you um, the insights that yeah, we, we gained with regard to the reward mechanism, which can decrease transaction costs for all firms who adhere to the rules and regulations because they can make use of the advantages um, offered, for example, for their third party management, but also for internal processes. So for example, they have less on-site spot checks or less time consuming administrative um, processes for licenses. 
So far, German firms do not regard red lists as important and related rewards as that profitable. Thus, they do not actively strive to be red listed. And here, one interviewee from a German company whose firm was red listed because it, has a, it had a very um, good tax record um, stated that the firm does receive these kind of certificates from the tax authorities every year, even prior to the social, um, to the social credit system. So we can still see that as of November 2022, 45% of the German firms already hold a reward status as it is without actively striving for it. Next slide, please. Um, the sanctioning mechanism of the social credit system um, seems to affect very few German firms, as in the business confidence survey, only 7% reported that they had have a negative entry in the past, and 0.16% currently hold a punishment status according to the web scrape data. But if firms are affected, we see that punishments impact um, their third-party management and their internal processes equally. Overall, consequences for a punishment status seem to be very ambiguous. From the 32 firms who reported, so these are the 7%, who reported that they did have a negative entry in the past, 50% reported that they did not have any impact on their business and they just went on as usual. But the other 50% faced um, high consequences. For example, additional negative entries from other government agency, agencies um, or business partners who terminated the business relationship or even individual members of the management level being blacklisted. Um, next and last slide. Um, oh no, that's, can we skip that? <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, to just conclude and maybe to take away from you, for you, um, we can see that the findings corroborate um, that the impact of the social credit system on firms in China, um, as they were identified by Teresa in her qualitative um, um, study, threw a larger sample and it shows that the social credit system indeed changes the rules of doing business in China. Second, even though the social credit system was obviously set up to reduce firms' transaction costs, our findings indicate that its effect is more complex um, and the social credit system not only reduces transaction costs. Third, international firms are not only passively affected by the social credit system. Instead, they seem to actively react to it through adaptations of internal pro, um, procedures. And in case these adaptive practices that they apply in China to cope with the social credit system turn out to be effective, they might also spread to other countries. Um, yeah, for further questions, um, please contact us or, or read the paper. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the ADMS podcast. Session recordings from this conference are available on our YouTube channel. Visit admscenter.org slash YouTube.